This episode's guest is Cameron Joss. Cam is currently in his second season as an athletic performance coach with the football program at Indiana University, Bloomington. Now, I'm sure most of the listeners of this podcast are fully aware of who Cam is. So for Cam's full bio, you can head over to the show notes. On this episode, Cam and I discuss Cam's transition from the private to collegiate sector. I asked Cam how he and his partner have dealt with moving to several states over the past few years. I asked Cam to give the listeners some background on football at Indiana University. I asked Cam how they have dealt with the physical preparation of their players during COVID-19. I asked Cam about the biggest difference between the private and team setting. I asked Cam about speed development for team sport athletes. I asked Cam, what is he reading? And finally, I asked Cam, how does he learn? Guys, this was a great episode with Cam, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Cam, thank you so much for making time. I really do appreciate it. How are you doing? Robbie, it's good to be back, man. It's, I think you were saying off air, it's been three years since we last did a podcast together, and I, I can't believe it because I, I feel like I just remember doing it the other day and it's been three years so time really flies but I'm doing I'm doing great I'm glad to be back and I hope you're doing well too I am and I am and really appreciate that and just I suppose with the three years that has elapsed since we last spoke like fill us in on what's happened first of all you just fucking went off the face of the planet <laughs> it was like it, it was like okay let's see what Cam has on Twitter today because you were putting out great stuff and then it was like wait a second he's got no Twitter he's got no Facebook that man's lost his mind. It, but one one part of me was like, "Yes, I love it." The other way, but one part of me also was like, "Ah, oh, man, I don't know what he's up to." But fi- finish in on what happened over those last three years. So you were at Joe's last time we spoke, and it's over to you. That's right. Yeah, last time we spoke, I was at DeFranco's Training Systems, uh, where I spent really close to eight years uh, working at that facility with, with Joe DeFranco, and I was. While I was there, I, I was starting to feel the itch to come back to a team setting. And for me, it didn't matter if it was going to be a high school, collegiate, or professional realm. I just wanted to be a part of a team again because, you know, when I was working in the private sector, we had small groups, which made for really efficient training. I learned a lot. It was basically like having my own personal lab every day with multiple groups a day. And I learned so much hands-on by doing that and uh, being able to witness how certain types of programming might work or what what doesn't work. And so that was an awesome experience. But for me, I just said, well, I'm learning all these things. I want to figure out, you know, when I would have conversations with coaches in the team realm, I was trying to figure out how can I take what I'm learning in this private sector environment and then bring it, expand it, and apply it to a full team. And the other thing too was – You know, in these small groups, you have a mix of all different populations of athletes and all different levels, you know, whether they're junior level, high school, collegiate, professional, all these different levels of athlete. And it was hard to witness them all in their respective sport. You know, for me, that's, that's the biggest reward is to be able to watch these athletes perform in their game or their sport, whatever form of athletics they're doing. So I said, I just want to go somewhere where I can be a part of one team focus on that team and just follow that team all year round from the in season to the off season to the transitory periods and all of that. So I had it in my mind. I wanted to go back to the team setting. And so 
in 2020, I had the opportunity to do that. I, I, well, I was, you know, I was speaking with a couple of different places and it was really just about finding an opening and a right fit. And so for me, and at the beginning of 2020, I actually accepted a position at University of North Carolina in Charlotte with head coach Chris Laskowski. So I went down there at the beginning of this year. And so 2020 is just all around been an absolutely crazy year. But at the beginning of 2020, I, I accepted a role with Chris Laskowski there uh, as uh, an assistant strength coach position, just trying to get back into the team setting. And I'll forever be thankful to Chris for the opportunity that he provided to me. Chris is a wonderful strength coach. He's He's, he's magnificent. He does a great job of really commanding the players, and they are on top of their game. They're disciplined like I've never seen, and they do a, a really awesome job there. And, and the head coach, Will Healy, is, is is amazing as well. And so that was an awesome opportunity. And I ended up getting a call uh, about two months into that role where uh, Aaron Wallman, who is the head strength coach for the New York Giants, was he basically called me, and I built up a relationship with Aaron over about three years when I was working for DeFranco's in East Rutherford, New Jersey, we were very close to MetLife Stadium. So I had gotten in contact with Aaron Wallman and, and, and spoken to him for about three years and we built up a relationship. And I, I wanted, I wanted so badly to work for him, you know, just being able to, just being able to be with him in the building. Cause every time we met and spoke, I was just so amazed by the knowledge that this guy possessed and his commitment to excellence and, you know, speaking of like the social media and all that, he wasn't big on doing any of that because he, he he's truly the definition of he, he's too busy trying to be great to post things on social media. <laughs> like he just, he's too busy reading scientific papers and, you know, he's got a PhD. And uh, I mean, the guy is just an absolute machine when it comes to trying to learn everything he possibly can. He connects with so many people. So for me, I was like, man, if I ever get the opportunity to work with this guy, I'm going to hop on it in two seconds. And sure enough, when, uh, he decided to leave the New York Giants and, and accept the uh, recently vacated role at Indiana University for, for head strength coach of football. He gave me a call and, you know, he offered me an opportunity to be with him. And I just, I just decided with my wife, you know, just we made a decision together that this is, this is going to be the right move for us. And, and just for what I wanted to do in my career in terms of uh, just aligning with him and being able to apply what what we had been discussing basically for three years you know we had we had already mapped out so many ideas and things together that i just felt man if we could get together it'd be a lot of fun and and something that i really want to do so i accepted that role uh got to indiana in march and so that's been my transition out of the private sector to being you know, an athletic performance coach for football here at Indiana University. So uh, it's it's been an, a really weird ride beginning this journey in the team setting during the whole COVID pandemic as well. But I can tell you that uh, I, know, I know for sure if we can get past this, get past all of this and come out fairly unscathed at the end of our season, then we're going to learn a lot and it's, it's going to be, uh, we're going to be so much better for it at the end of the day. So that's kind of a long-winded response to where I am right now. Man, that's not long-winded at all. You, you just fit three years into that answer, so that was pretty short. <laughs> Come here, though. Just be, before I ask you about your current role with Indiana football, just a personal question for me, too, because this is something I always kind of like to have a conversation with, with my fellow peers in the field. How have you found all the moving around? Because like, you've lived in a lot of places already for someone who's – I mean, you're only you're, – you're roughly the same age as me. You're 31, 32? 
22? I'll be I'll be 30 next month. Yeah. Oh, you're not even 30. Jesus, I'm three years old. I'm 33. But like I know you've been to New Jersey. You moved down to Texas for a while, back to New Jersey. Then you went to was it South or North Carolina? Did you say? Uh, North Carolina, yeah. North Carolina. Now you're in, in in Indiana. So like you know, you've done you've done quite a bit of moving around. How have you found that with your wife? Well, you know, I met my wife when I went down to Austin, Texas. The first, you know, that was my first big move was uh, when DeFranco's was trying to do a bit of a, a partnership idea with on it the uh, supplement company on it uh, i guess they're all encompassing now they have their own fitness and athletic performance and everything but at the time they were primarily just a supplement company getting into fitness and so we we got in contact with them or joe defranco got in contact with them and we tried a partnership experiment down there uh for two years in austin texas so i went down there joe stayed in new jersey so when i went down to austin texas i met my wife there at a at a super bowl party <laughs> so that was the uh the first move was with her back to new jersey so yeah she was uh she was a south florida girl who then moved to austin texas and i brought her back to beautiful new jersey <laughs> so she's i'm kind of the jerk for doing that but yeah so we uh that was the first move we did but we she she was she was good with that she uh she was okay with that move and then you know she was she was she was certainly looking forward to the move down to Charlotte as well, and we actually didn't even make it down there fully to where I had gone down there to start work, but she was busy packing up where we were in New Jersey, getting ready to move down to Charlotte, and that's when I called her and I said, well, this opportunity came up in, in Indiana, so um, instead of going south, we ended up just driving 13 hours west, and so for her, it was a lot of change, but there's also some stability involved where she was able to keep her, her job that she had in New Jersey. She works in, in law. So she was able to keep her job remotely, especially that the, the, the pandemic was actually a blessing for her because they discovered that they could get a lot of work done remotely. So they allowed her to keep her, her position. So yeah, just, you know, I think we just decided together it was a good opportunity for us as a, as a family unit to, to make this move. But um, I'm sure the other reason why it was a good move was because our, our head coach, Tom Allen, you know, he signed a seven-year contract extension just at the end of last year. So we, we felt as though there was some stability involved with making the move as well, where it wasn't like a one-and-done type of thing where we were here for a year and then we're out on the streets trying to find some other type of work. So obviously, I'm, I, you never know, but I'm certainly hopeful there's some level of stability to being here. And so, yeah, it was, it was not too much uh, of a damper on our, our relationship, just, you know, in terms of moving around and all that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been fairly smooth, I would say. Just for, like, maybe more so the European listeners, could you give us a little more context about the status of Indiana football within collegiate football in the States? Like, where, where do they stand? Like, maybe a bit of their history, and then we can get into what you're currently trying to do there in terms of the S&C setup. Yeah, absolutely. So, Indiana is primarily known for their basketball. You know, they had uh, Bobby Knight here as a, as a coach for many years, and their basketball team is, has really gotten most of the attention. Football has always been in competitive conferences. You know, we play in the Big Ten Conference, so we have to play universities like Ohio State, uh, Michigan, you know, Penn State University. These are all teams that are, that are in our conference, but also in our division. So we have to play these very tough, competitive highly historical uh, collegiate football teams in terms of American football, where Indiana historically has, has never risen to be at the very top. 
uh, if <laughs> excluding a long time ago, you know, they were big 10 champions in, in the 1940s at one point, but s since then they have not been. So uh, Indiana's really, it's not known for making it to a lot of postseason bowl games. Uh, they, they did make it to a bowl last year. They ended up losing the game to uh, Tennessee, but what we are trying to do is just is do our best to put Indiana football on the map because Indiana football historically has not really been on the map and it's considered a developmental program, uh, you know, where in terms of getting very big recruits, it's, it's a program that's in development where it's more likely that we will get three and four star prospects rather than four and five star prospects. Whereas, you know, a school like Ohio state would get a lot more five star prospects and, and be able to recruit more successfully due to their history. So what we are trying to do at this point is sort of look realistically where we are and how we are set up in this conference and what it's going to take to continue to build our program in order to really be competitive in this pro in, in this, in this uh, conference. So how do we build a competitive program? And that's what our head head coach, Tom Allen, he's completely dedicated to building this program and he's, he does not see it. Some coaches might see this as a stepping stone, position even though it's in a big conference in the big 10 conference a lot of football coaches might come here thinking i'll be the head coach there maybe i get a bigger job you know down the lines at a, at a more historically successful school with a lot more funding and things like that uh our head coach doesn't see it that way he's here to to he's he's truly an indiana guy he's he's from indiana he's a he's a he's a born hoosier and he's dedicated to building this program and this is exactly where i personally wanted to be in terms of, I wanted to be a part of, be a part of something that was building, you know, that was my goal when I, when I wanted to get back into the team setting. That's why I didn't want to discriminate between high school, collegiate or, or professional. I just said, I hope I land somewhere where there's an opportunity to build something and let something grow rather than just keeping something afloat. That's already very successful. So there, there's obviously plenty of admiration for, for people that do that as well. I just know for me personally, I wanted to be a part of building something. And I think Aaron Wellman and the rest of our staff, our strength staff wanted to see that as well. They wanted to be part of something like that as well. So yeah, we're, we're in the developmental stages right now. We're trying to get ourselves on the map and we certainly have the people in the building to get that done. So it's a very exciting opportunity. I know because it's your first year now with Indiana football and given everything that's gone on with COVID, you, you probably can't give a true insight to, you know, the day-to-day -day setup, but maybe even just walk us through what you guys have done during the pandemic and maybe then on the back end of that, talk us through what you would like to put in place when COVID is over and we're back to quote-unquote somewhat normality if you know yeah, I, I kind of i hate when people say the word no but you know what i mean like if if there was no pandemic how would you have liked to set up the preparation of the footballers this year so maybe talk about what you guys did do during the pandemic and what you foresee you guys doing when you're you can go back to more of a regular training schedule yeah we certainly are not doing everything that we would want to be doing that's that's uh, i can say that with full confidence where a lot of the things I know I spoke to Aaron about over the years that I knew him, some of the training ideas that, that we had discussed, some of those things we're still learning how we can start to apply those things here. Um, so the, the pandemic really put a damper in what we felt we wanted to start doing in terms of building individualized programs for our players and doing it in ways that is 
as highly as optimized, you know, as, as optimized as we can get them to be. Uh, so, I mean, the first thing was we just had so many constraints coming in and, and when we first started working with the players. For one, when we got here, we thought we were going to have them like the next week and then all, the whole pandemic hit. So we couldn't even see the players or do anything with them for, for months. And at that point, we were uh, basically just trying to email them workouts and things, but they didn't even know who we were. They didn't know what we expected from technique standpoint from the, you know, we're sending them the name of some drill that they, you know, unless they're going on YouTube and searching for it in depth on their own, are, are they really going to know what it is? We did our best to try to film some things for them and, but we couldn't meet them in person. We couldn't really communicate or coach with them just due to the rules and what was going on at the time. And so that was a major constraint, but we did the best we could there. And then when we started uh, being allowed to, when we were, when we were allowed to have them in person, we had to keep them in these highly, strict cohorts where we had to really break them up over these different groups and like the same coach couldn't work with more than x amount of players and so we had our whole staff had to break up into these different cohorts and, and take you know these are your 20 guys or whatever it might be and so we, we operated that way for a while which was uh you know just highly chaotic and so we had all these restrictions that everybody else had but at the same time we're a brand new staff where we don't even know the kids so trying to instill our culture and really it was what Aaron Wallman wanted for, for his culture being the guy that's kind of the captain of our strength staff and the, the culture that he wanted, the vision that he had for, for what we wanted to put in from a program standpoint that took some time to do, which, you know, cause, cause he had to teach us as a staff what he wanted because we were in charge and, you know, I, you know, I had my own guys and then he had his own guys like, we weren't together. So we had to like really understand each other's, uh, or we, we had to really understand the culture, each one of us individually, so that we could convey that to the players. And that took some time, you know, that just took some some effort and some time. And, and especially for me, making the transition from private sector back to here, I had to learn how to operate on the fly and, and adapt and adjust. And, and I knew that's the way it was going to be. And so I thought it was a chaotic, crazy, but, but amazing experience because it, it really taught me how to be even more adaptable on the fly than, than I felt that I already was. So, um, and then as, you know, as, uh, as we progressed through and we were able to start doing more testing and things like that in terms of testing for the virus, you know, we were able to start consolidating groups, um, to where the cohorts became a little bit bigger, but, and then heading into this, this time we're, we're now able to operate at least like offensively, defensively. And, and the weight room that we have here is 25,000 square feet. So, uh, it's used by all the sports here. So it's not just a football only weight room. Um, I think basketball is the only one that has its own standalone weight room. So it's a gigantic weight room, which allowed us to have a lot of spacing between racks and, and between the players and, and keep them separated and into different cohorts. So it actually allowed us a, an opportunity to be fairly efficient with it. But we, within that, as, as the cohorts became more consolidated, that's where we were able to start. Okay. Now you guys understand what we've been doing so far. So now let's start to individualize a little bit more towards what you need uh, or at least what your position needs. And so we're starting to slowly branch out into more individualization to where we now understand what each guy needs based on who he is and what we've seen him do. So it's, it's been just a crazy evolutionary process. And I, I do believe 2021 will be our really our first year to start hitting our stride of what we want to do. And I think it's going to be uh, where you know, based on the, like you said, returning to a sense of normalcy, I think it's just going to be about, we make it through this season, 
this eight game schedule that we have coming up. And uh, when that's over with, I think it's going to be about, we all sit down with Aaron Wellman as, as a staff and, and we just hash out like, all right, we've done X, Y, and Z so far. This was a ridiculously crazy year that we hope never happens again. So what do we want to do if it gets somewhat normal heading into 2021? How do we actually want to conduct uh, the implementation of our programs going forward? So I think that's really remains to be seen where we will be and what we will be doing in 2021, just based on everything going on. What's, what's been the biggest difference going from DeFranco's, a private setup, to Indiana football now in a collegiate setup? Really, the biggest difference is a matter of volume. You know, volume of, of players that are on the floor. And, and uh, you know, I had at DeFranco's, I, when we were, we, we had two different gyms in New Jersey that, that I worked for. The first one was, was a much bigger facility. It was about 5,000 square feet uh, where you know, I might have, I ended up having a, a whole team of high school kids in there at one point uh, for a high school football team. So, I, you know, the biggest group I had there was maybe uh, 30 to 50 high school kids. So that that was somewhat of an experience for me to where I, I was I was used to doing that. Uh, but that was really my only giant big team experience at that point uh, in terms of me actually being the coach on the floor. Because when we went to Austin, the biggest group I might have had was maybe 10, 10 guys at a time. And then when we, when we went back to East Rutherford, you know, that's where we really downsized and I was taking groups of five or less. So it was just, I would say that the volume is, is much bigger, uh, obviously coming back to this team setting. And then also the, just, just the, the volume of personalities involved because now I'm on a staff with four other guys at, at DeFranco's towards the end, it was just Joe DeFranco and me. And, and Joe was really just more of a managerial presence. He wasn't coaching on the floor with me. So it was really just me on my own uh, in terms of just coaching and implementing programs. So coming here, learning how to operate with four other coaches, which they're all amazing. You know, we have Chris Allen, Pete Remis, and Justin Collette with us here. And, and they're just, they're some of my best friends already. You know, just, just incredible people, incredible coaches. They do a, a fantastic job. Um, and so just learning how to get to know them and how they operate and how they click, you know, that was, that was an adjustment. And then at the same time, learning how to deal with all the other people in the building, you know, we have administrative people, we have the, the football coaching staff and uh, the sports medicine team, the nutrition team, you know, just everybody that's involved here. Uh, but I will say that the people in the building here are, are, are just as incredible as you could ever want and hope for. They, they are head football coach Tom Allen and the rest of his coaching staff. I mean, they are tremendous people, They're like exceptional people. I can't even say enough high things about them because I'm just so amazed at how they fuel us in such a way that they allow us to do our jobs and they encourage us. They say, we want, you know, you guys got this, you know, just take care of what you need to take care of. And they want open conversations all the time. They want to know why are you doing X, Y, Z, not because they want to question it, but because, they want to just know, you know, they want to know, they want to learn. And so, and we can do that with them, you know, what's, what's going on on the field with this from a tactical perspective or technical perspective. Why are you teaching it that way? We have those conversations with these coaches all the time and it's just an awesome experience because, you know, I've heard horror stories of that not being the case elsewhere where, you know, coaches and strength coaches do not communicate with each other as a major separation of, of state or whatever you want to call it. And uh, here we don't have that. It's one big family. It really feels that way. 
you know, head coach Tom Allen, his whole mantra is he, he always says LEO. So you always see hashtag LEO on Twitter. It stands for love each other, you know, love each other. Everybody in the program loves each other. They make it known that you love each other. And sometimes that means tough love where I'm not just, I'm not calling you out because you're not doing something right. I'm calling you up because you're not doing something right. Like I need to, you need to realize like if we're going to win a championship and I, I, I'm showing you love by telling you like you need to be better, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, but there's just a, just a ton of leading with love here and it's, and it's really amazing. And so we, we try to carry that message and uh, yeah, just the differences are certainly a matter of volume and, but I'm, I'm just, I'm loving every bit of it. You know, it's exactly what I wanted to be a part of and I couldn't have drawn it up on paper any better than, than what the situation is for me personally here. Man, that's great to hear, and I'm going to steal that. I'm not calling you out, I'm calling you up. That's brilliant. I heard that from, uh, actually heard that from Chris Laskowski at University of North Carolina, Charlotte, when I was there. I heard him say that. I said, that's really good. That's a really good way to put it. You know, I'm not calling you out, I'm calling you up. I, yeah. I liked it a lot. Really good. So the second area I really wanted to discuss with you, as I said before we hopped on the podcast here, was around speed. Because I know it's an area that you've, you know, really done a lot of self-education on. You know, you've really explored this topic in depth. I know you um, you have a very good relationship with the guys at Altus, um, as I'd like to think I do myself. Um, I was very, very fortunate to get an internship there and spend three months and just be able to shadow Stu. And I always joke, I got to watch Stu not coach. Because, <laughs> you know, the way Stu is with his whole, uh, you know, constraint-based learning and all that type of model. And just so people know, he's a phenomenal coach, just in case people are confused what I'm saying. But um, I had a great time there. You know, just uh, my level of understanding of just how to coach speed, you know, just it, it expanded exponentially. But um, as I said to you, you really resonate with me because you're similar in terms that you came to sort of your thought process around speed from an S&C physical preparation background rather than say some guys who come from that track background and then get into sort of SNC and physical preparation. So for me to show up here and stop rambling, my overall sort of, you know, and it's not even a question, but it's more so like when I say speed and speed development, like where does your whole brain go to there? And like, you can take this wherever you want in terms of, you know, uh, assessment, how you look at different playing positions or even different sports, how you break down that speed, like, you know, the classical acceleration top end model. And then you can maybe get into some multi-directional speed or agility. You can take this wherever you want to go. Yeah, man, it's a, it's such a deep rabbit hole for me. And I, I love the way you put it, how I started with a strength and conditioning foundation. Cause that's exactly what it was. You know, I, I just wanted to learn how to lift weights, how to bench press properly, how to do a barbell squat properly. You know, that's where it all started for me as a kinesiology student. And, uh, you know, I was interning with Joe DeFranco when I was in college and just trying to learn just the implementation of strength conditioning. And you always think it's just lifting, you know, it's, that's where it starts when, when you're, uh, you know, when you're a young high school athlete, that's what's what our coaches, when I was playing American football in, in high school and in college, the coaches would just get in the weight room and get stronger and bigger. And, you know, so it always starts with that, right? It always starts with the weights and, and things. And yeah, I never did track and field, you know, I, uh, which is funny because given, given where I've gone in my career up to this point, you know, I've, we have a lot of players even here at Indiana that say like, where'd you run, where'd you run track? And I said, I never, I never ran track. <laughs> so I just, I just learned from, from some of the best track coaches in the world. And I tried to get in contact with them. And so, yeah, for me, it all started with just, you know, I, I think really when I was at 
DeFranco's, it was talking first with, with Mike Guadango, who was there with us at the time. And he, and he was just saying like, Hey, listen, I just did an internship with Buddy Morris and James Smith at Pittsburgh, you know, back in, I can't remember the year that it was. And, uh, he's just saying, he started saying, you know, speed is really important. Like you need to start learning about speed. So I said, okay, well, how do I do that? Right. And so, um, you know, he turned me on to some of the work from, from Buddy and James and, you know, James was just heavily referencing Charlie Francis. And so I said, I need to learn about who this Charlie Francis guy. Right. And so that was like right around the same wave. Everybody's reading Charlie Francis, trying to learn about speed. And so, but that was a tremendous foundation for me from a speed standpoint, just reading all of Charlie's stuff. I remember I would sit at my laptop just dissecting every word the guy was writing on, on paper. And I, and I loved how a lot of the, the quote unquote books, like the PDF files and things that were out from him were, were really interview style. You know, it's like somebody was, it was like a transcript of somebody asking him a question and him just responding because it was just from the, the horse's mouth or the coach's mouth, you know? And so for me, that was tremendous foundation to learn. So I, it, it got to a point where I was like, okay, I know speed's important. I need to have people run fast to get faster. And I thought it was just as easy as that, you know, it just, I think a lot of times you read Charlie Francis and that's the, that's the misunderstanding a lot of coaches will get because he's talking about, you know, 90, 95% or higher speed or 75% or lower of speed. Like don't be in the middle zone, all that stuff. So I think a lot of coaches see that as like, well, all right, so we need to be constantly, if we just sprint fast, we're going to get faster. And obviously there's some level of truth to that. Uh, but what I started running into in my coaching, especially in my young coaching, when I started taking athletes and trying to do speed work with them at DeFranco's is I'm, I'm reading it like it's a recipe in terms of, all right, you want to get top end speed, do flying sprints. Okay. Yeah. All right. Plug and play. Let's do that. So I, I had athletes pulling quads, pulling hamstrings, you know, <laughs> it's like, there's all these soft tissue things going on and I'm, you know, lower back our hip is going, the groin is going, the calf would go, things like that. And I'm just like, I, this speed stuff is, I don't know about all this, just like every, a lot of other coaches, not every other coach, but a lot of other coaches experience the same thing where they're like, I'm, I'm going to stick with 10 yard sprints because I don't want to deal with any of that. Right. So where that led me to was there's gotta be a way to do this safely. I mean, it's a human locomotive effort. Like humans shouldn't know how to run fast and do so safely. So that was when I just started really diving down the rabbit hole of, how do I do this with the proper technique? You know, how do I coach this? It's not just, Hey, run fast and I'm going to time it. And then, you know, let's, let's see what the time was. Was it 95% or higher or whatever? You know? So I just, I got to the point where I said, I need to learn how to coach this stuff. And just like I would a bench press, just like I would a squat, you know, uh, there's gotta be some biomechanical technique to it, to do it safely and effectively. Like we're not going to do a deadlift with my back rounded, you know, it's just, that's going to lead to obvious risk. People know that same thing with whatever insert any lifting. And if you do it with bad form, people inherently understand if I add load to that bad form injury might ensue. But what about when you add massive doses of velocity to a movement or power to a movement, right? Uh, whether you add load or you add speed, it's all just increasing intensity. So if I'm adding a ton of speed to this movement that's being done improperly, I should expect some things to happen like a hamstring pull or, or a hip pull or something or a tear or something bad, you know? Uh, so that's when I really just went into trying to understand the technical elements. And then I found Altus that way, you know, starting with, with finding Dan Paff and then finding Stu uh, McMillan and then just really reading everything that they would put out. And then that was sort of the beginning where they were putting out these courses. And I just was, 
I, I would say almost obsessed with trying to understand everything they were talking about. And that led me into trying to read scientific literature that was coming out from, you know, J.B. Marin, Ken Clark, uh, you know, all these guys that were studying the mechanical underpinnings of how to be fast and how to how to be fast in a safe and efficient manner. And so all of these things started to compile upon themselves. And then I would say where it evolved from there to go further was, okay, we understand how to get linearly fast, do so in a safe way. I'm starting to kind of learn how to coach that. I'm still to this day constantly trying to learn how to coach that better and better um, to help guys get faster. But now how can I help this athlete apply this speed in their team sport? Because it's not a track and field race. So how, how can I get them to understand how to apply that speed? And so that's where I started talking with Sean Mishka um, and Fergus Connolly and people that were trying to understand how to apply these things in the team realm to the team sport in order to play the game faster. And that, that's when I went down the whole rabbit hole of the perceptual cognitive side. Like how, how fast is my brain picking up information? How fast is my brain able to not just understand the information presented to me in my environment, but what does that mean in terms of how I'm supposed to respond with movement to the information that I'm, that I'm perceiving. So in my wake up call with that was I was working out with an athlete one time and we were doing, I think 10 or 15 yard sprints with the timing gate. And I ran through and then he ran through, you know, and I was, I was beating him on my time and I felt good about myself that I was faster than this guy. And so then he said, well, let's do this. Let's, how about I go a yard behind you and to the side a little bit, like a half a yard. And then when you start to move, I'll try to catch you and then we'll flip. Like you do the same thing. You start to move, I'll try to catch you. And that was where I never caught him and he caught me every single time. So even though I was linearly, quote unquote, faster than him, he, his brain picked up the information from the environment faster than my brain did, which was like just a total mind, you know, like I just, my mind was blown when I, re, when it clicked like that for me, where I was like, okay, so it's really not just locomotive speed. It's that brain body connection in order to harness whatever my abilities are and utilize them appropriately. And it's just like, so I went down that whole rabbit hole of trying to understand the different constraints to performance and how that leads to different, uh, different manifestations of motor control and how that can evolve and change over time in a nonlinear fashion and skill acquisition and how all that, like, I mean, it was just that rabbit hole. I mean, if you want to dive down there, I encourage everybody to do it, but just know you're going to be diving forever. Like there's no, there's no floor to hit. <laughs> Once you dive down that, that hole, you're never going to hit ground. So, um, really grateful to to Sean Mishka, really grateful to Fergus Connolly for opening my mind to those things. And that's really what led to doing the book projects with Fergus and, and continuing to get involved with Sean's uh, sport movement skill conference every year, because I, I realized that it's not just about linear speed. It's about all of these different factors associated with speed, which is why I think the Altus need for speed course that they just came out with is exceptional because they cover all of those different bases and they did a really fantastic job with that course. So yeah, that's a, that was a long winded answer. Was it not like that one was pretty long right there. So. <laughs> Man, that's, that's what I call an absolute beauty of an answer. And, you know, I can completely resonate with like your, your thoughts on like, once you go down this, this whole skill acquisition rabbit hole, you're just, there is no floor. You just keep falling. What came to mind was, I was like, yeah, sure. Mishka's been, Mishka's been falling for how many years now? He's still falling. He's still free falling. 
But uh, I am, yeah, two years ago, I really went down that rabbit hole to 2018 because when I, during my master's on our biomechanics course, there was a massive skill acquisition component and I read five skill acquisition books, like cover to cover. And it was funny because I always say this to people when when I start talking about this, is that when I initially went into research and skill acquisition, for whatever reason, I just had this story in my head that this is going to be so boring. And I don't know why. And as soon as I got into it, I was like, this is so fascinating. Because the fact that like, just like emerging properties and affordances, like the way they just appear and disappear. I like, it's just, it's just so amazing to me. Like even like a simple example I always give people is like you come in on a Monday and you can do a box jump on a 32 inch box. And then we absolutely destroy your legs with lower body weight session on Monday. And you come back the very next day and you can't jump on that box anymore. So what you could previously achieve the day before is now, now transiently is gone. It's disappeared. It's not within your realm of acquisition but like i mean there's even like more acute like it's it's the timelines of skill acquisition like even even what you could achieve at the start of the ball game won't be there probably at the end of the ball game because of fatigue so like your ability to sprint that fast is transiently gone and it's only like 60 minutes later or even within a second as you know like my ability to execute certain movement could be gone in like a split second because an opponent has blocked that pathway and that affordance now is gone it's just mind-boggling if it rains if it wins and then like if you had an argument with your girlfriend before uh your your game or or for a, before a scrimmage that can change emotion can change all your it's just it's like rabbit holes unbelievable oh yeah absolutely and you know when i was talking with uh nick ward of altus when you know we were talking just as they were designing the need for speed course and he said can you just keep provide me with some example you know they use that kinefin framework of simple complicated complex and chaotic problems that you would face in, in coaching and, and he said what can you give me an example of each one and basically during the for the chaotic for the chaotic realm i, I said for me it's that that psychological aspect that because to your point you know you could be so prepared for a game just physically technically and tactically but if something ha- like i mean you could have a great first quarter and then in the second quarter something could happen to you psychologically that all of a sudden all the skills you have are useless it's just they're gone you know it's just it's and that's you can't prepare for that like the, just the 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 repeat like how rapid how rapidly that that can be diminished from a psychological perspective is unbelievable. So um, yeah, that was just like you said, that skills will, they'll appear and they'll disappear and they'll, it's, it's that whole nonlinear skill acquisition. That's why they call it nonlinear. Cause it's just, it doesn't just stay there forever. It, you know, it's just about moving between stable and unstable states. You know, it's just, it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. Which, which is kind of a mind fuck in itself because the way a lot of, a lot of, individuals think particularly if they're very left brain analytical and and they're you know i suppose the the individual that's coming to my mind is that strength coach that loves data and they love to be able to measure you know measure outcomes and have these objective uh, scores or objective metrics and you know the sort of common question that a lot of people in the skill acquisition realm get as well how do we measure this it's like you can't because it's non-linear so like it's it's kind of like it, it, you know, that sort of uncertainty just is very unsettling to so many coaches. Um, 
And do you know something too, what comes to my mind, and I actually, in fairness, this was from a conversation with James Smith and he brought this to my awareness, is that like, if you take a player, let's say, and he's with one particular team and just say whatever the ethos is of that coach, you know, like, so if they're learning like a new sort of technical setup or a scheme, like James was saying, but like the environment that they learn that in, because, you know, we learn with memory and emotion as well. Like, and if there's more emotion attached to, to something that we're learning, we're more, we're more likely to actually remember it. Now, how that skill or that certain process was learned, you know, with the associated memory and emotion that was learned with, you know, that can have such a powerful impact too on how you were able to express then the acquisition of the skill that you're trying to attain or execute. So what I'm trying to say is like, you often see these players who they're amazing with one team and then either a new coach comes in or they transfer to another club or another team and they're just not quite the same. And it's because like maybe now there's more fear or trepidation because now the environment they're in learning new tasks it's more of a critical dog eat dog, whereas before maybe they were told, oh, you're okay, you can express yourself. It was more safe to, you know, try and, you know, really push the boundaries of certain like skill acquisition movements or sports specific skills. And it's just like, again, it goes back to this whole emotional setup and the display of a, of a skill acquisition component. Like it's just, again, rabbit holes. And we, me and you could rap on this forever. Like I, as you, I don't know if you ever listened to the podcast we did with Sean, like these three hour marathons. And it's just like, you know, what about this and what about that? And but again, it, it's it's what makes all this whole process of physical preparation and human performance so um so interesting. Yeah, I mean, some people see our field as very frustrating because they just want the answer to things. And like you said, the people that are that type A, data driven, very analytical, you know, completely logic driven, they they want the answer. You know, if you run this speed, you will play better. It's the more that you're, the more that you're involved in actual coaching and witnessing what happens with athletes on a day-to-day basis, you know that's not true. You know that that's not the case. Of course, there's improvement that's happening. If your time goes from this to this and it improves, yeah, there's something happening from a strictly from a motor potential standpoint. You know, your motor potential now is that you can run faster. You've shown that you're capable of doing that, but I don't know if you can use that yet because I haven't seen that manifested in the sport context. So that's something that I really learned a lot from from Sean and from Fergus was just the context matters so much. You know, it's just what what's the context of where this needs to be manifested and. Uh, like you were saying, how a, a player can switch switch teams and have a different coach or a different environment. You know, that just takes me back to the Newell model of constraints and how every athlete has these different constraints on their performance, whether it's something that is within them. Maybe they're not strong enough, they're not powerful enough, they're not big enough, whatever it might be. So we can work on those. You know, that's something that in strength and conditioning, we capitalize on those. We help get you stronger. We put more muscle on. We can help improve your power output, your speed output, things like that from a general motor potential standpoint. Uh, but, you know, there's still constraints in terms of the environment that you're playing in and the task itself. And so the, the environmental constraints include the coaching cues and the type of coaching that you're receiving. (laughs) So it's, it's not, and it's also includes the social sociocultural aspects as well of just what, what are your teammates like? What's the area like, you know, when you leave the the stadium or, or the practice fields, like what kind of environment are you surrounded by downtown? You know, if you go to a restaurant, what kind, what are the people like? All of these things factor into how that athlete is going to perform. And so it's, to me, it's just a, 
that's the crazy delicate balance of it takes me all the way back to that like two factor model of just fitness and fatigue you know and in a way that's it sums it up nicely obviously we can dive down deeper rabbit holes but at its most basic element I, i see it as being similar to that where there's just something that's causing fatigue and then there's underlying fitness qualities and if if there's too much fatigue that's going on whether it's psychological or physical whatever it might be if there's too much shroud right if if there if the motor potential is clouded or the the psychological mindset is clouded then it cannot manifest itself appropriately it can't really truly reveal itself the underlying potential so uh you know potential is something that's great but it's also something that's really scary if an athlete has a lot of potential because it, we just don't know yet if it's going to be manifested. Everything has to be right for that individual in order for it to just fully unveil itself. And so that, that's, that's the delicate balance in coaching all the time, especially for us right now, leading into our, our first game. You know, how can we keep the fatigue level in such a way that we can really show our fitness and fitness meaning not just physical fitness, but our technical fitness or tactical fitness or psychological fitness you know how do we work across these four coactives if you will uh to just get our athletes to be the most ready to go <laughs> on game day on that first game and that, that's the delicate balance now in this setting that i find really fascinating you know the, the more again i went down this rabbit hole the more fascinated i got with the preparation of like first emergency responders so military pilots like even the training of astronauts because what it made me realize is that confidence just really comes from training and exposure because the, the big thing I, that for whatever reason this image comes into my mind and like as an irish person i suppose it's kind of weird but it's, pro- it's probably because i actually do have a big fascination with american football but i always think about like you know the lineman on the line you know so you have your your offensive line and then like the defensive line and he's just like sh- like he's just saying shit to him you know, you're, you're shy, you know, you're, well, like that's the real Irish thing. You're shy, but you know what I mean? Uh, you're, you're, you know, you're going to get cut. You're not, you're no good. You're too slow. You're too fat. Your mama, all this stuff. And it's kind of like, while, while uh, th- this is kind of like the, the catch 22, while you still want your, your players to be in an environment where they feel safe and can express themselves. Like, you know, we still need to get them prepared in a way, you know, for those jabs. It's like, you know, don't react to that. Don't react to that. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, you know, saying all these like ridiculous things with their family and what they've done to their sisters and you know, whatever it is said on the line, like and it's to be able to have them psychologically prepared for that so then that they can still be in a position to execute their sport specific skills, the, both the technical aspect and the tactical aspect to the highest degree possible without letting that emotion interfere with the whole skill acquisition rabbit hole we're talking about here as well. So it's just really, it's, there's just so many spokes in that wheel that we need to consider when we're talking about complete, um, you know, preparation. I suppose there never really is going to be a complete preparation. It's just like, it's like anything. It's like you're never going to reach this peak of like optimization, but you're just always kind of striving towards it. You know, what's that old saying? It's like, if you aim for perfection, you'll fall on excellence or something like that, you know, something along those lines. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but that's just, again, more my thoughts that are simulated from your answer. Yeah, well, I mean, just, just to piggyback off of what you just said, it, it's what I'm learning now being in the team setting is there are so many layers to getting it right, and it's just – it's so hard to do. I mean, no, you can't get it right, really what it is. I think there's always going to be some level of luck that's involved, but I think the more that you can control what you can control, the more – 
or, or I should say the less you will rely on luck to help you along the way. So, but I do think it is about controlling what you can control, you know? So I think there's going to be times where an athlete gets hurt doing something that it, it just a freak thing happened. You know, I used to just, and I still do, I get very upset over when injuries happen, you know, like what, what could we have done to better prepare that athlete uh, so that maybe that didn't occur? And specifically non-contact related injuries because contact is, it, it is what it is. You know, you're dealing with blunt, blunt force trauma. Things are going to happen. But it, likewise with non-contact injuries, I mean, sometimes things are just going to happen. And I think that these people on social media or whatever it might be that think, well, if you just had done X, Y, and Z, that wouldn't have happened. Well, you, you don't know because there's, like we just talked about it, how there are so many constraints to a, an athlete's performance and we just don't know, you know, that athlete could have gone out at 2 a.m. the night before and done who knows what, you know, engaged in activities that were detrimental to that athlete's fitness state, you know, just maybe they're massively dehydrated because of their actions the night before, or they didn't eat any food. They have no fuel inside of them. Their bodies are not operating in a, in a homeostatic state. I mean, they're just out of whack and then they show up to practice like they normally do, but now they're in a totally depleted state that, none of us as coaches were aware of and something happens, you know, like the, a muscle gets pulled or a ligament gets torn or something like that. So, um, you know, or maybe that didn't happen and, and who knows, there, there's just always so many things that are just so hard to explain. And I think back even reading super training, uh, they had literally a whole section and chapter on fuzzy fitness and fuzzy logic and how there's all these fuzzy things that happen in sports that are just so hard to explain. And I'm sure over time, we're going to be able to explain more and more. I mean, that's what science is about. But it's just at the same time, you know, it's so multifactorial that for these people that are, you know, these armchair <laughs> professionals, whatever you want to call them, that are not working in this environment and they immediately assume, well, because of, of this, you know, this is what happened. Well, I, I can tell you, like, I, I've, I've put out things about sprint technique, right, uh, specifically when approaching top speed and having good front side lift and good posture and neutral positions and all of these things and applying force effectively through the foot into the ground. Yeah. We're working towards all those things, but I can tell you here with a roster of 120 players that we certainly have a lot of them that don't run like what I would like them to run, you know? And so that's where, and it's not just, these guys are not just here to learn how to have proper front side lift. So that's the other thing too, is like, they're here, they're, they got to learn the playbook. They got, they have to go to school. They have to, you know, there's so many other factors that they're dealing with and the social factors of just being a college kid, you know? So for me to just sit here and expect them to just dial in the way I do as a coach on how to achieve proper frontside lift with neutral pelvic posture and, and all these things, like I, I know it's going to take, you know, months, several months, years, even for some of these guys to start to slowly understand what we're talking about. It's a slow cooking process. So, you know, I just, I'm just waiting for it when people are like, I, you know, I read that article about you in the front side lift and I watched an Indiana game. This guy, did, he was kind of butt kicking out the back. You know, I'm just waiting, you know, that's inevitably going to happen at some point. But to me, it's just like, well, yeah, he does. And we need to work on it. I mean, what do you want me to tell you? Like, of course we still, we, we still have, we still have work to do. We're always going to have work to do. I can't just snap my fingers and have 120 guys with like perfect textbook sprint form, but I know the shapes that we want them to achieve. And so we're going to work towards that over time and, and hope that we can, it's, it's basically a statue of David. We're chipping away at a stone over time. And hopefully by the end of their careers, as they start to go into the NFL, you know, they're, they're leading into the NFL with their last college year, maybe 
I'm hoping at that point, the shapes they're achieving when they're moving are, are fairly efficient. Like that, these are the goals that we're hoping to achieve, but we we're perfectly aware that it, it takes time. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort and the rewards are very minimal and it's just minimal rewards over time is what it is. So <laughs> we're just hoping for slow progression in the right direction. There's always, always that motherfucker who will come in with a comment like that. And, and it makes you wonder, like, how sad is your life that you just waited for that little moment to give this tiny little critique to someone? And there's probably someone halfway across the world who only knows you through Twitter or whatever, you know? It's just like, what? Because uh, the reason why, and I know the listeners can't see this, but we're on Zoom. And the reason why, like, you saw a big grin on my face was I actually had an athlete too. And, like, he actually has, like, he, he actually has, like, structural constraints in his like if you lie him on his back like his his knees just like don't, they don't even approach 90 like he's got like some hip deformation that deformation that he's had since childbirth and somebody saw him doing a sprint roll and they're like god his frontside mechanics are terrible would you not want to fix that and then like i called him over and i said here paul lie on your back show <laughs> bring your knees to your chest and then i like, just kind of looked at the guy who said that and said yeah see my point now and they're like oh, oh yeah sorry just again, presumption, you know, or making assumption. Oh, you're not coaching him up. It's like, yeah, because you don't know the pathology he has, and you're just making this assumption. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm gone on a bit of a rant there, but I, I, I completely can can resonate again with what you're saying there. It's just those, you know, rolling your eyes, and yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Listen, we're we're just coming up in the hour here, and I want to be respectful of your time, and also I have to go. But man, we could we could just wrap for so long on, on so many topics. But uh, just wrapping up here, Cam. Uh, in terms, you you are a man who's continually just obsessed with continuing education. What are you currently reading, and what would be your top reading recommendation as of lately? If you have, any. well, that's yeah, no, that's a that's a especially recently because I've I've made the decision to pursue my PhD next year, so um, ah, I'm reading did. a lot of. Oh, you did! Oh, that's perfect. That's great. Then, yeah, I. I'm reading a lot of scientific research, so specifically centered around speed. So I'll just, I guess I can, I can list those for people that like to read science. You know, I'm reading papers from JB Moran, Ken Clark, of course. I just, I constantly review those and try to have conversations with those guys too, but their papers are, are excellent. I've been reading a lot from Ryu Nagahara because of his mm. awesome force plate setup that he has over there in Japan. And uh, you know, just very interesting research coming from there. Uh, James Wild. Michal yeah. Cahill, these guys, you know, these are these are guys that are putting out amazing works. Obviously, Matt Cross with working with JB, Pierre Samazino. Um, there's just there's so many authors I could name that I, I'm sure I'm missing some, and I don't I don't want to butcher it too much. But just a lot of those guys write papers with each other, so you'll you'll find all the names if you go down that rabbit hole. So um, I'm reading a lot of science, and then at the same time, I'm reading. Uh, I'm reading through Alta's Need for Speed course because it's it's just so dense, and I know it's going to take me a lot of time to get through it and absorb all of it. But I, what I love about what they do with their courses is just how all encompassing they really are. I mean, there's just that, that Need for Speed course; it's worth every damn penny that you can pay for it because it's just. I know some people are probably going to read it and the philosophical aspects of it, they might roll their eyes at that a little bit or not really care about it. Like just, Oh, just give me the drills to get faster and things. But I really encourage everybody to really read and absorb the philosophical elements because you will start to understand the why's behind what you're doing. And in my opinion, you know, that's where 
the manifestation of the drills and the exercises that you end up using look very simple, but if you have the art behind why you are doing those things, you have a much clearer picture of what you can start to expect, hopefully, from the training that you're imparting upon your athletes. So I, I encourage everybody to really read through that if they get that course, just read through every last bit of it. So um, those are really the main things I'm reading right now, to be honest with you, just a lot of sprint related research because that's what i'm going to be studying for my phd and uh like johan lotti actually has some really interesting stuff uh based upon hamstring injuries and the multifactorial approach to preventing those so that's that's a big one that i've been into as well as some of his work so um yeah a lot of just science right now that i'm reading <laughs> in preparation for for my phd pursuit uh few things 100% 100% concur with you with the need for speed course unreal worth every single last penny and I remember when the foundations course came out and I was like I can't believe how like and I don't I don't even want to say the word cheap but like just how affordable that course was like it was it was like this is unbelievable like the return on investment from any of the stuff also puts out is just phenomenal um, and also you impressed the shit out of me you said, Michal, well done. That's right. Well, I, I, so I, I talked to him on the phone uh, not too long ago and because uh, I was trying to see about the PhD program at, at the, uh, the school where he did his. And, In Auckland. Um, yeah, yeah. So I was kind of asking him about that. And, you know, it was just funny because I think you see it written as, as Michael almost from the American Eye. You know, so I, I just when I got on the phone, I said, Hey, Michael. And he goes, it's actually, it's actually me cam. It's, it's, it's the Irish version of Michael. So I said, well, I'm going to call you by your real name. You know, I'm not going to butcher it. So it's like my, my last name is technically a French last name. People butcher it all the time. So it is what it is. So, so, so you can't leave on that. So how do we pronounce your surname? It's uh, it's just Joss. I think in, in France, if you were to get technical with it, it's, it's Joss, but it's, uh, yeah, it's you know the French J in there, but yeah, it's just it's just Joss, and people say Jossie, they say Jose, I've, I've Josie, you know, I've gotten it all. So, um, but yeah, it's just a French last name that it's, looks a little weird. And, it's like Dan too, like you know, people are like Faf, and it's like it's actually Paf, but Dan's just like whatever now. Yeah, yeah, yep. So, um, listen, sorry, one one very last thing, and if you feel this is a question that needs longer time, we'll call it here, but. I just just because I have you on the line here and you know I respect the shit out of you, I really would love to get an insight into this. How do you learn? So like what is your learning process? Like how, how do you go about mastering the topic? Now if you feel like that's gone it's a big rabbit hole, we can we can leave it to another discussion, even offline or Yeah, I mean it's it's not too long winded for me. It's I, I do like reading. I learn well from reading, but for me it's going to be ultimately visual. You know, the, like the technical aspects of sprinting, uh, when I saw the work from Ken Clark and he had the videos from the work he had done with Peter Wayan down at the locomotor lab and at Southern Methodist university in Dallas, um, when I saw his videos in conjunction with the photos he had from that and and the, the bullet points, that's when it clicked for me when I saw, when I would read what they were talking about, when, like, if I just wrote, if I saw a sentence describing a position, I could kind of picture it, but to see it and then see it written out after that, that's where, for me, I I learned the best that way is, is through visual representation where I can see exactly what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then from, from that point, when I start reading more about it, it it continues to click with me. Um, So for me, I'm mostly a visual learner that really helps me the most. 
Brilliant. Cam, listen, this has been a, a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. I really do appreciate your time. I'll wrap up now and say a quick goodbye to you offline. Just if anyone did want to reach out to you, what would be the best way to connect with you? Yeah, really two ways. One is uh, I am back on social media, but only on Twitter. Uh, I figured that that would be a good way to help promote Indiana football. And just, I, I probably tweet now once or twice a month instead of every day. And it's so much better. I have to tell you, <laughs> it's, it's so much better. And I don't get into arguments with anybody. If they want to argue, then I, I, I've actually had posts where people argue with each other underneath. And I said, great, just leave the meat to the wolves, you know? So uh, I just post a little snippet here and there. And I just I like, I, you know, I, I just talk about some of the things I'm interested in and, and that's about all I, I do on there. But if you want to reach out to me on there, you can always, you know, shoot me a direct message. And I don't go on too often. So don't be t- as, as happened with you when you wanted to talk about doing this podcast, I was a little bit late to respond. So I hope nobody's offended if they send me a direct message and I don't immediately respond. But then the other way would be just, just my work email here. It's just uh, cjoss at iu.edu. IU just stands for Indiana University. So cjoss at iu.edu. Those are probably the two best ways to get in touch with me. Cool. I'll, I'll put those in the show notes if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. All right. And, uh, and don't forget people, he is like, extremely busy. So if you've never been in a collegiate setup in terms of strength and conditioning, uh, well then you, uh, you're missing out on a lot cause it's quite hectic. So give the man a chance. Listen, Cam, I really do appreciate it. So as, as I said, I'll say to you, I'll say goodbye to you offline, but for everyone listening until next time, take care, be well and stay strong. Mm-hmm.